Hello and welcome to the Redemption Church Podcast. We're a church in Newmarket, Ontario, Canada that exists to glorify God through the fulfillment of the Great Commission in the spirit of the Great Commandment. Thanks for joining us today. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we are here because of your name. God, because of its beauty, because of its worthiness, because of its power, God, all these words that we just sang, Lord, we believe. And God, we're so eager this morning to experience each of those things, Lord, trusting that as our voices fade, your voice will not, Lord. As your word is opened, God, you have a word for us here. And so, God, I pray for our hearts right now in this room as we open up your word, God, would you find hearts that are bowed down before you in awe of your great name, in awe of the truth that your name can never be rivaled by any enemy, by any sweetness. Lord, there is nothing that compares to the value of your name. And so, God, would our hearts continue to worship you? God, as we gaze at the glory of your Son, God, help us. We need your Spirit, Lord. We need it so desperately. We're so dependent on you. Lord, we know that your power, your grace is sufficient for our weakness. So we submit ourselves to you, God asking that you'd work mightily in our midst. God, we pray this in the name of your Son. Amen. Amen. You guys can grab your seats, and as you grab your seats, you can take your copy of God's Word and open it up to John chapter 7. We're continuing in our series this morning called Gospel Driven. And the point of this series has really been to to show that there is really no category in Scripture for someone who's saved by the gospel but not gripped and then driven by the gospel. When the gospel saves us, it changes and transforms our life in such a way that the New Testament, really all the scriptures, as they talk about the new life that we have in Christ, as the language is used about our new identity in Christ, it really describes a life that is thriving in Christ. The picture that we get is the whole Christian life by the gospel has been renewed. So that now the picture of the Christian's life is a life of thriving and growth. You think of Romans 8, where Paul speaks in pretty categorical terms to say that the Christian identity as one who now faces no condemnation is an identity of one who's putting to death the deeds of the body. It's not a command that Paul gives in Romans 8. He just says, if you're in Christ, you're putting to to death the deeds of the body, and now the spirit of life is working in you and bringing about this life. It's just something that happens. Think about John's words in chapter 4 as he quotes Jesus, who tells the woman at the well that she can drink of a water in which if she drinks of it, she'll never thirst again. Her spiritual thirst will be eternally quenched. Think of Paul's words in Galatians chapter 5 and the fruits of the Spirit and how the Christian is to be abounding and thriving in the fruits of joy and peace and patience and so on. This is the call of the Christian life is really to thrive. But as we even look at a short list of the Bible's description of the Christian's thriving who's been gripped by the gospel, what we come to realize, and maybe you're even feeling this right now, is that often our experience feels different than what the Bible describes. I wonder if you ever asked this question, how come my life in Christ doesn't feel like it's thriving? 
If the attention of the gospel is to save us and to drive us to Christ, how come we don't always experience that drive? How can we still struggle with sin so pervasively? How come our days aren't filled with the peace that is a promised fruit of the Holy Spirit? Instead, they're often filled with anxiety and worry. How can we still feel the need for satisfaction having drunk of the thirst-quenching water, living water of Jesus Christ? What I want you to see this morning is that the intention, in fact, the invitation of Christ to you is to thrive in him. When the gospel takes a hold of your life, when the gospel grips your life, drives you towards gospel-driven thriving. This is your identity in him. Now in Christ, you have all the resources that you need to experience abundant joy, to experience abounding peace, and to experience overwhelming and unending fulfillment and satisfaction. This is yours in the gospel. And what Jesus wants to do through his word this morning, as we read his words in John chapter 7, is invite us to this gospel-driven thriving. Now church, don't miss this. There's such good news for us here this morning. If it's your desire to experience more and more the freedom that has been bought for you by Jesus Christ, don't miss Christ's words to you this morning. Don't miss his invitation to you. See, this is the reality. Jesus delights in the freedom that he won for us being felt by his children. Do you know that? It's easy to say, but at times it's hard to believe. But our Lord Jesus Christ does not delight in you not experiencing the freedom that has been won for you in the gospel. And Jesus' invitation to us this morning is to experience the gospel-driven thriving that is natural to the gospel. And so we need the Spirit's help this morning. Help us to hear the call. How many times have we heard this call? How many times has this call been fallen, fallen on deaf ears? John 7, it's interesting. It wasn't planned like this, but contextually it comes right after um, the chapter in John that Dave Grant preached on two weeks ago. He preached from John chapter 6 of John feeding the 5,000. And you'll notice that at the beginning of John 7, which really provides context for the verses that we'll be studying this morning in verses 37 to 39, Jesus finds himself almost being bothered by those who are with him. John calls him his, his brothers. And in verse 2, it says, Now the Jews' feast of booze was at hand, so his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples all may see the works you are doing. And Jesus was invited to go attend, attend this yearly feast. It was one of the three great feasts in Israel. It was the Feast of Booths. And yet at this point in time, Jesus was a wanted man, so he understood to walk into the Feast of Booths, to walk in such a public manner, would mean that he would be surely arrested. Now the Feast of Booths was a yearly feast that the people of Israel were to celebrate, really to celebrate the provision that God had given to Israel in the desert. When God delivered Israel from Egypt, they were in the desert, they lived in booths, and all of their hunger, all of their thirst was satisfied by God. You remember the manna falling from heaven? You remember the water coming from the rock? And God set up this yearly feast to remind them of the time that God provided for them in the desert. It was an immense celebration. It was something that 
the Jewish people looked forward to because they would celebrate God's provision in the past and the provision for their current time. But not only would they look back, not only would they look to their present time, they'd also look to the future so that Zechariah in his prophecy associates this feast with a petition to God for adequate rainfall. So understand the context here. Going to the Feast of Booths was remembering all the ways that God had provided and caused the people of God to thrive throughout their history. It was to go there and celebrate that, to be reminded of that truth of who God is, that God is a God who provides for his people. That as the people of God have been with the presence of God, they've been a thriving people. And so they go to this feast year in and year out, and for seven days they celebrate the feast, and they look forward asking God to give them a year of rainfall, a year of crop growth in which they could thrive all the more. Celebration was also sort of a parade in which they'd start at the pool of Siloam, and fill a jug. The high priest would fill a jug with water and, and start walking. And, and the whole, all of those attending the feast would be behind the priest, dancing and singing and celebrating God's provision. And for seven days, they would march towards the temple. And on the final day, they would pour the water over the sacrifice to say this, that God's provision ultimately led to his sacrifice for life. And this whole feast reminded Israel that Their God was a God who was able to bless. Their God was a God who was willing to continue to bless. But during this specific celebration, on this specific year, we read in verse 37, do you see this in the text as you open up your word before you? John chapter 7, verse 37 says, On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out. And this feast would be one to remember because Jesus is calling Israel to a deeper thriving Israel, Jesus is showing Israel a deeper meaning in this feast that they look so forward to celebrating. And this morning, I want you to see that God's doing the same for us. He has you here for a purpose. It's not by accident that you're in your seat this morning, sitting before his word with this specific message. Jesus has a word for you. And what he invites you to this morning is infinitely meaningful. It's gospel-driven, thriving And so I want you to see in John chapter 7 how the gospel really invites us to thrive. And the first thing I want you to see is that Christ is inviting us this morning to thrive by consuming living water. That if you want to be a thriving Christian, the first thing that you must do is consume living water. Now the whole of chapter 7 really takes place at the Feast of Booths. And at the beginning of chapter 7, Jesus is kind of being bothered by those who are with him to attend the feast, but what we find at the beginning of chapter 7 is that Jesus doesn't attend. You remember that Jesus was, at this point, a wanted man. And so to walk to the Feast of Booths was essentially the same as being a criminal and walking into the police station and saying, here, you can handcuff me. And so Jesus speaks to those who are telling him to come and says to them, my time has not yet come. He points to a time where it will be time for him to be arrested. It will be time for him to be killed at the hands of lawless men, but this is not the time. And so those who are with Jesus go forward without him. And at first, Jesus doesn't attend. But in verse 10, we're told that after his brothers went up, Jesus sort of sneaked up. He went up privately and started to watch what was happening at the Feast of Booths from a distance. And while it was happening, he even went to the temple and began to teach in the temple as the parade made its way through the city towards the temple. In verse 37, 
John brings us to the last day of the feast. And so notice it's on the last day that Jesus stands up. On the last day, Jesus attends the feast. On the last day, Jesus cries out. On the last day, Jesus makes himself known. And what Jesus does, this is really significant. I don't want you to miss this. Jesus doesn't stand up and condemn the feast. What Jesus does is he stands up and enlightens Israel on the true meaning of the feast. That's why he waits till the last day. John tells us exactly why right here, because he says it's the great day. This would be the day where the water finally made it to the temple, and everyone started playing instruments. They started singing psalms. They started celebrating God's goodness, God's deliverance. They started dancing at the temple, and they would fill a bowl with water. They'd fill a bowl with wine, and they would pour it over the sacrifice. It would be the climax of the parade. It would be the ending of the parade. And on this last day, Jesus stands up and gives them a greater reason to celebrate. He says these words. You see them in verse 37. He says, if anyone thirsts. You hear this in the context of the, boost, of the Feast of Booths? If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Hear that again, church. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. There's so much significance packed into these words, but I don't want you to miss this important point. Jesus doesn't condemn the festival. Jesus shows us the true meaning of the festival. Festival is a, a pretty interesting thing. A, fee, a yearly feast is a pretty interesting thing, isn't it? Like if I showed up to your house one day and helped you build a shed, and then after building that shed, I said, hey, every year on this day, I want you to have a feast to remember this shed I built you. Well, you'd probably say that's kind of really weird to do that, to celebrate that. But another thing you'd realize is that I think it's pretty important, at least I think it, you probably don't think the same, but at least I think it's pretty important that you remember this beautiful shed that I labored over to build for you. And what Jesus, or what God does for the people of Israel in this, establishing this yearly feast is set up a time for them to remember his provision. And what God is teaching us this morning is that one of our greatest needs when it comes to thriving in Christ, is simply to remember our sin condition is a condition of spiritual amnesia. That's our sinful condition. It clouds our thinking so that when we need to remember spiritual truth, we forget spiritual truth. This is why we're so prone to wander as God's people, because we're prone, really, to forget God's goodness. This is why the psalmist says in Psalm 103, he says these words, Bless the Lord and forget not his benefits. Because the psalmist has this understanding that our problem as sinners is that we forget the truth that God has already implanted in us. See, our problem is not really that we don't know enough. Our problem is that the truth that is in our hearts and in our mind the problem is that we don't often access it when we really need to. I don't know about you, but my wife can attest to this truth, and I'm thankful she's not here this morning to attest to this truth. But I'm a very forgetful person. In fact, one of the, it's pretty much a daily problem in my life that I forget the trinity of going outside of the house effectiveness, the tools you need. You know what the trinity of tools you need is? It's your phone, at least for a man, your phone, your wallet, and your keys. And I'm sure that if you have any ounce of wisdom, you have kind of a system. When you walk into your house, you put your, at least your wallet and your keys in the same spot, and you keep your phone on you maybe, or you put it in the same spot so that when you need to find it, you can find it. Well, I don't have that system. 
I walk into my house and I keep walking and I take my wallet and I throw it in one place and I take my phone and I throw it in another place and I take my keys and I throw it in another place. It's never the same place. There's probably about 10 places that there usually are, but it's never the same place. So that when I have to leave, all of a sudden, I don't have the things that I need to leave. And it's this huge scramble to find all these things that I need in order to be effective in leaving the house. See, I have these things. The problem is that when I really need them, they're nowhere to be found. And you need to know that your spiritual problem is the same. Not, likely not that you don't have the truth you need. You likely have all the truth you need to thrive. In fact, I'm reminded of a story so similar to this of John with the woman at the well in John 4. You know what happens? John tells this woman one thing, that if you drink of me, you'll have water that will cause you to never thirst again. That's the only thing the woman at the well knows. She doesn't know biblical theology. She doesn't know systematic theology. She doesn't know church history. She doesn't have the Christianese downloaded into her mind. The only thing she knows is that there is water that will quench her thirst eternally. You know what she does? She goes to the town. Talk about gospel-driven. This truth is implanted in her. It consumes her, and she could do nothing but go to the town and tell everyone about this living water and say, you got to come drink of this. You don't need much truth to affect change in your life. The issue is that so often we forget what we already know, and in our greatest time of need, we can't find it. And one of the greatest blessings of my ministry over the years has been the countless people I've been able to sit down with and provide biblical counsel to. And in the process of biblical counseling, one of the things that I keep coming back to is to remind these people that they already know the truth that they need to know. They just need to apply it to their situation. See, in suffering... As many of us are suffering poorly, most of the time we don't just need to be told, hey, God's in control of your situation. You already know that truth. That truth is easy to download on good days. The problem is that in the bad days, when nothing's going your way, when everything seems like it's falling apart, where the suffering seems too great of a weight to bear, the problem is that on those days, you don't remember that our God is a God that is in control. This is our spiritual amnesia. We forget See, the truth that you need to get you through life's hardest moments, through sin's deepest entanglements, it's likely already known. In fact, if you just hear these words right now, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. You know everything you need to thrive as a Christian. The likely scenario is that you just haven't applied this deeply enough into your life and into your heart. See, this is so true of us when we struggle here are some examples of ways that affects our life. When you struggle to get into God's word, you know why you struggle to get into God's word? It's not because your alarm didn't go off. It's not because your life is too busy. If you struggle to get into God's word, you've forgotten the truth that God's word is a lamp to your feet, that you walk in darkness if you don't walk in God's light. When we respond to someone with anger, we forget that the anger of man can't produce the righteousness of God. When we walk around with pride, we forget that the prideful fall and the humble will be exalted. When we live lives that are filled with anxiety, we've forgotten God's truth that he is wise, he's loving, and that he's able. See, the reason we don't thrive is because we forget. This is why one of the constant commands of Scripture is to meditate on God's truth. You know what meditating is? It's not learning anything new. Meditating is being reminded of what's already there. 
So that in Psalm 1, the psalmist says, Blessed is the man, that means happy is the man, whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates. And you know how often he is to meditate? It's not once a week. The psalmist says if you want to live for God, it's not once a day that you need to meditate. The psalmist says that if you're to meditate, you need to be meditating on his law day and night. It's this constant meditation. That word is the same word that's used for a, chow, a, a cow who's chewing grass. I don't know if you've ever been bored enough in your life to look at a cow who's chewing grass, but they take the grass and they don't just eat it, they chew it. It's like that one kid in your family, I'm thinking of one specifically, who just never finishes their food. They're there like 30 minutes after everyone's left the table and they're constantly chewing the same grass and it's breaking down the grass until it's at a point that they're able to digest it. And this is what the Bible calls you to as you meditate on God's word. See, it doesn't matter how much you fill your head with head knowledge if you don't drive that knowledge from your head to your heart through meditation. And the Bible calls us to meditate day and night because we are a forgetful people. We're constantly in danger of forgetting the truths that we know. And so we need to meditate, driving God's truth deeper and deeper and deeper. This is the whole of the Christian life. You've never driven God's truth deep enough into your heart. You are always at risk of forgetting. This is why you're going to find as, that as I serve as your pastor, you're going to come to realize, if you haven't realized already, that I don't really have m- many new things to say. If you're coming here for like some sort of TED talk on psychology and some new things to learn, I don't really have much to tell you. But you know what my job is as your pastor? Not to show you any new truth, because new truth would be heretical truth. My job is to show you God's ancient truth. And what we do on these mornings is we get together and we sing God's ancient truth. And we listen to God's ancient truth the preaching of his word. And we go out there and we speak the ancient truth to each other through Christian fellowship. See, everything that we do as a church is remembering what God has already told us. This is what Jesus is reminding us, not by reinterpreting the feast, by telling us of his truest significance that we need to remember. And so on this final and great day, you read in verse 37 that Jesus stood up and cried out. I love this picture. I think part of the reason why we don't love reading God's word is we just don't use our imagination enough. Could you imagine Jesus? He's sneaking around, following the feast as the parade goes from the pool of Siloam towards the temple, and he's following around, trying to stay hidden. He's a celebrity at this point, and everyone at the feast you read in John 7 is talking about him. Have you heard of Jesus? Who do you think Jesus is? Oh, I think they should arrest Jesus. Oh, I believe in Jesus. Everyone's talking about Jesus. And there's Jesus. He's, he's lurking in the background. I wonder if he's running from bush to bush, doing like those uh, action rolls. Until the last day, or on the final day, where the crowd has gathered together at the sacrifice. Everyone's excited for the most significant moment. Jesus stands up and he cries out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. It's exactly the opposite of what Jesus has been doing for seven days. Now, at this feast, there's a number of different kinds of people attending. In verse 3, we're told about Jesus' brothers who believe in Jesus, but they're kind of misdirected. They think that Jesus needs to reign kind of this political, military kingdom. 
And that need, people need to see his work so that there'll be kind of this revolution and people will start following Jesus as this political king. And through his ministry, he would constantly remind them he came not to be crowned with the crown of a king, but to be crowned with a crown of thorns and to suffer for his people. And then in verse 11, it says the Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? And look at this, in verse 12, there was much muttering about him among the people. Well, some said, he's a good man. Others said, no, he's leading the people astray. Yet for the fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. Not only are people wondering who he is, not only are people misdirected in who he is, in verse 32, it says the Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. And so there's all these different people attending this feast, all focused on Jesus, all misguided, misdirected, confused. And Jesus, in the midst of all of that, at the potential great personal cost, he stands up, he cries out, he draws the, the, the attention of the whole crowd to himself to say these words, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Why does Jesus do this? Why does Jesus stand up and draw so much attention to himself despite the fact that he's a wanted man? It's because of this, Jesus loves us so greatly that he reveals the truth about himself no matter the cost to himself. This is how much Jesus loves you. I think you need to hear this truth this morning because I wonder if you're here and maybe you question the existence of God. In one conversation I find myself having multiple times with unbelievers is this question of, does God really exist? And I often ask them, well, what, what, uh, what would prove to you that God is real? And sometimes they have an answer. Sometimes they just don't know. And I said, well, if God was in this room speaking right now, would you believe that God is real in this moment? And they say, well, yeah, I'd, I'd have to. You know what the argument of the Christian worldview is? The argument of the Christian worldview is that God did the same thing as being in this room and speaking that God came to this world. He didn't just send a prophet. He didn't just send a messenger. God sent himself. And at great cost to him, Jesus stands up and brings clarity to who he is. And if you're here and you don't know Christ, what needs to happen in your life is you need to start to, gr to grapple with this historical man, Jesus of Nazareth, who lived 2,000 years ago in time and space. His voice was audibly heard. Jesus' life is one of the most historically recorded events in all of history. In fact, it blows other history out of the water. There's no one more historically attested than this man, Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And the words that he said are the words that we have before us. And what you need to do is grapple with the truth that God has come to this world and God has spoken truth. And the question is, are you going to believe that this was God? Or are you going to believe that maybe he was a liar or a lunatic? What are you going to do with this man who stood up and said, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink? This is also relevant for you if you are following Christ. Because for you as well, Jesus stands up at great cost to call you to water that can truly satisfy. See, when his disciples were misguided, when those in the crowds were confused, Jesus stands up and brings clarity about what it means to thrive. He says, if anyone thirsts. Is anyone here thirsty? Does anyone here need satisfaction? Does anyone here need fulfillment? Well, Jesus stands up and he invites the crowds to find true and full fulfillment in him. 
This is what happens when you don't pursue the path of deepest joy in Jesus Christ. Jesus chases you. He's not content to let you wander. Jesus always goes after the lost sheep. He always chases us. When we live our lives pursuing water that can't satisfy, pursuing goals that don't lead to our joy, Jesus stands up and cries out, come to me if you want living water. And I wonder by the power of the Holy Spirit who needs to hear that this morning, that you've been living your life pursuing these things, that they're empty cisterns. They cannot lead to your joy. They just cannot. They're just not designed to. And Jesus this morning calls you to come and drink living water. Even this morning, 2,000 years later, Jesus has brought you to a point where he at the very least calls you to examine yourself in the midst of your busy and distracted lives to ask, are you drinking water that truly quenches thirst? There's only one water that does, and Jesus told, it, told us about it himself. And notice what Jesus says about the thirsty. He says there's only really one place that you can find refreshment. Jesus says if anyone thirsts, and he doesn't list a whole host of options that you can go to if you want to quench your thirst. It's not like if you were to say to me, speaking of a physical thirst, hey, I'm thirsty, where can I go? I'd say, oh, there's a Tim Hortons down there and also a convenience store and a grocery store and there's a few restaurants where you can get maybe a soda pop to quench your thirst, whatever you want. You can go and find all these options where you can quench your thirst. What Jesus gives us is one option. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. We live in a world that offers so many activities under the premise that they can truly satisfy your life, that they can truly give you fulfillment in life. Maybe we're tempted to believe some of, these, some of these pursuits. Maybe we're tempted to believe that if we didn't have a nine to five job, we'd truly be fulfilled. Maybe we're tempted to believe that if we were just liked a little bit more by our neighbors, then we'd truly be satiated. Our thirst would truly be quenched. But Jesus is telling us that drinking anything other than himself is drinking salt water. It just makes you thirst all the more. Isn't that true of the pursuits that you've had outside of Jesus? You've never arrived to a place where you're satisfied with what you have. The rich just want more riches. The famous just want more popularity. The entertained are never entertained enough. The popular are never popular enough. The fit are never fit enough. They're, they always need more. Our idols, they promise to quench our thirst, but they never quench our thirst. They promise to fill our bellies, but they always leave us hungry. And so what does Jesus offer us here? Jesus offers us true thirst quenching. Jesus offers us a life that's lived in pursuit of him that satisfies our deepest desires in him. I think of the psalmist in Psalm 42, verses 1 and 2. He says, As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. This is the invitation, church. Drink living water. Come to Jesus and find living water and never thirst again. The invitation is to leave stale water, to leave dead water that cannot satisfy and drink of Jesus. Notice that after this, Jesus says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me. And he says, whoever believes in me. And what Jesus say, is saying is that belief and faith really boil down to this. Do you believe that true satisfaction can be found in Jesus or do you believe that it can only be found in the world? 
This is what faith is. That life, it's this belief that life will go better for you when you listen to God's word, when you live God's way, than it will go for you when you live the world's way. This is true belief, believing that Jesus is living water, that when we drink of him, we'll thrive. The food of the world just can't satisfy. You've ever had food that just doesn't satisfy? You fill up, and just minutes later, you're hungry? Listen, no one in this room has a greater love for McDonald's than me. I will fight to the death on that truth, okay? I love McDonald's. But here's something I can at least admit about McDonald's. That McDonald's is good, and if you think it's not, you're just lying to yourself, okay? It's good as long as you're eating it. It's good for about the 10 minutes you have as you sit before the Big Mac and the fries and the Coke and the kind of glory is shining down from heaven on that tray and you delight in the perfectly made hamburger that I would also argue every other hamburger at home needs to be made and modeled after the McDonald's hamburger. You delight in that hamburger. It fills you up. It tastes so good until you're done. And then... At the same time, it's a mystery of God. You feel like this brick is in your stomach, but you also feel hungry. And you've eaten about 1,500 calories, but you're just still hungry for more. It's food that, if we're really honest, doesn't satisfy. This is why the gospel is such good news, church. Because our broken heart, the brokenness of our heart, will keep running to that food, thinking that someday it'll actually satisfy us, thinking that someday we'll actually get nutrition from it, thinking that someday it'll actually quench our deepest thirsts. And Jesus stands up in this pursuit and offers us heart change, offers us a a heart that truly longs like the psalmist for water that can truly be satisfied and quenched by Jesus Christ. This is the work Jesus wants to do in us. This is the work Jesus invites us to this morning. It's, It's a work that makes the things of this world grow strangely dim and makes the glory of Jesus grow blindingly bright. He changes our hearts so that we desire to consume him. And if you want to be a thriving Christian, this is the first thing that you must do. You must each day, each minute of each day, consume Jesus Christ. Consume living water. But there's a second way that Christ is inviting us to thrive this morning. And the second way that Christ invites us to thrive is by pouring out living water. See, first we consume living water. But what Jesus says in verse 38, he says this, Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart... See, this is outpour. This is pouring out. This is coming out of you. Out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. See, the second way that you are to thrive is that as you consume the water of Jesus Christ, you pour out the water of refreshment and life and blessing to those that are around you. What Jesus is saying here is really that once we believe, there's this heart change. You see this? That as soon as you drink, let him come to me and drink. Out of your heart will flow living waters. Your heart is changed. The Bible says that, out of, that our heart is deceitful above all things. That means that before we came to Christ, the only thing that flowed out of this heart was this trickle of muddy black water. It wasn't a spring of life-giving water to those that were around us. And the, says now that through the Spirit, our water becomes a spring. It becomes a fountain pouring out living water to those that are around us. Now notice that Jesus is quoting Scripture here. And so he says, as the Scripture said. Now it isn't exactly clear which Scripture that Jesus is quoting. In fact, oftentimes in John, he'll say that 
the, uh, as quote, quote scripture like this, just to say that this idea is heavily supported in the Old Testament. And you start drawing comparisons and you find that there's actually all these threads from the Old Testament that make up this one single picture of the truth that Jesus is declaring. However, surely as we think through the Old Testament, there's so much rich imagery here in connection to the water. Especially as we think about Jesus saying this at the Feast of Booths. Jesus is saying this at the feast where the people of God celebrated Exodus 17, where in the desert they were thirsty and God, from, the, from a rock, I don't know about you, but I've never seen a rock provide any water. And miraculously, God provides water for all the people to drink from the rock. And they're at this booth celebrating this when Jesus says that out of his heart, the one who believes in him and drinks and consumes living water will flow rivers of living water. In Nehemiah chapter 8, the people of God, they have returned from exile. And they've returned from exile where they've been distant from God's presence with this renewed vigor to get right with God. It's kind of this recommitment of the whole nation. And it's really a, an amazing time in the, na- in the history of the nation of Israel because they all gather around every day. It says all day Nehemiah and Ezra would open up the laws of God and they would read it and then explain it. And all day the people were hungry to hear God's word. And at the end of that day, they would read of the part of their history where, sorry, on one of those days, they would come to read of the part of their history where God instituted this very feast. And it just so happened that as they were listening to Nehemiah and Ezra read from God's word and explain God's word, they realized that the time that they were listening was actually the time that they should be celebrating the Feast of Booths. And so with this heart of obedience, what the people of God say is, we got to celebrate this. And so instead of making it this seven-day celebration, what the people of God do in Nehemiah is they celebrate it for a month long. And near the end of that, the priests lead the people in this prayer and they say these words, praising God for his deliverance. They, they're reminded of these words in Nehemiah. It says, In their hunger, you gave them bread from heaven, and in their thirst, you brought them water from a rock. Because of your great compassion, you did not abandon them in the desert. By day, the pillar of cloud did not cease to guide them on their path, nor the pillar of fire by night to shine on the way they were to take, you gave your good spirit to instruct them. You did not withhold your manna from their mouths, and you gave them water for their thirst. The people of God are celebrating in the Feast of Booths the water that God had given to his people to quench their thirst. God had delivered them in the desert by providing them thirst-quenching water. And they remembered God's presence with them, providing water from a rock. Now Jesus makes deeper connections for God's people. We're not just celebrating that God provides water. Jesus is changing the location of that water. See, Jesus stands up at the feast to say this. You're celebrating that, that God can make water come from a rock, but I want you to celebrate this truth that God can make water flow from your heart. As they heard these words, their hearts were set, I'm sure, on promises like Isaiah 44, 3, that says, For I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. The people of God understood that there is a day coming where water would be poured over the nation so that everybody was satisfied, that the spirit was poured out by God so that everyone was filled. 
And Jesus stands up in this day to say, out of your heart will flow rivers of living water. And look in verse 39. It says, now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. See, Jesus' words are rich with meaning here. When you believe in Jesus, remember, what's believing? Drinking living water. When you drink living water, what happens is the Spirit of God resides in you, and from the Spirit, through your heart, flows living water. This was always the promise of God's people. It's the promise that God's people awaited. In Ezekiel 47, the prophet prophesies of a time where there would be a new temple constructed. You know what's coming out of this new temple? You can probably guess it. Water. Enough water that's filling rivers that are running all throughout the land. And Ezekiel says of this water that wherever the river goes, in verse 9 of Ezekiel 47, he says, wherever the river goes, listen to this, this is so good, every living creature that swarms will live. And there will be very many fish. For this water goes there. That the waters of the sea may become fresh so that everything will live where the river goes. The people of God are waiting for this temple to be constructed where there's water pouring out of it. And everywhere the water goes, the earth is teeming with life. All the animals who drink of the water are given life. Whoever comes and drinks of this water flowing from this temple that Ezekiel is seeing in this vision will be given life. And Jesus stands up to say that the pouring out of water from the temple, the day is here. That the temple would not be built with a physical building with bricks and mortar. Instead, the temple would be built through the church. The place of God's presence residing would no longer be in the tabernacle or in the holy of holies in the temple. Now the place of God's presence is in the heart of every believer. This is spirit theology, that when you believe, now the spirit fills you. You're filled with the Holy Spirit of God. And now as you are a temple of God, with the very Spirit of God living inside of you. What Jesus is saying is that living water is flowing out of you to the blessing of other people. What does this mean? It means that your life is designed by God to provide blessing, to provide life to those that are around you. It means that as a Christian, you are saved and filled with the Spirit so that you can consume living water in Jesus Christ and pour out living water through Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit. This is what Christian thriving looks like. The living water of Jesus flowing into you and through you. What Jesus is doing here is teaching us about gospel plumbing. I'm not a plumber, so if there are any plumbers here, I'm probably going to deeply offend you by this explanation of plumbing that's about to come up. So you might want to cover your ears. But as far as I can understand, plumbing boils down to two basic principles, doesn't it? The plumbing in my house is working as long as there's water coming in and water going out. And Jesus is saying that gospel plumbing works the same way. That Christian thriving happens as long as there's living water coming in and living water going out. 
And you see, I think many of us, as we think about Christian thriving, as we think about what our life would look like, if we're really thriving in the gospel, I think we kind of have the wrong picture. See, often we kind of think of ourselves like this cup that needs to be filled up to the fullness. And once the cup is full out of the overflow, then we can bless other people. Then we can serve the church. Then we can be a good Christian for our family, a good father to our children, a good husband and wife. We think that we live for God out of the overflow of God's blessing. But I think you'll actually be hard-pressed to find this terminology in Scripture. This idea that you serve out of the overflow of God's blessing, as though you need to get to a certain point until you're ready to serve. In fact, we've talked about the woman at the well a few times. And what we see there is that she was immediately filled for service. In fact, as the Scriptures talk about us being filled, we're reminded in Psalm 23 that our head is anointed with oil, and that our identity in Christ is that our cup overflows. We're reminded by Paul in Ephesians that in Christ we have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. If you are in Christ, there is nothing that you are lacking right now. You have everything you need. Your cup is overflowing. In fact, what we see in the scriptures is that our example is actually the opposite of serving out of the overflow of our heart. What what scripture really says, if we're going to press the illustration, is that we serve out of emptying our heart. Isn't this the example of Jesus Christ, who in Philippians 2, 5 to 7 said, let each of you look not only to his own interests, to the filling up of his own cup, to the serving of his own self, but also to the interests of others. Paul says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but listen to this church, emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. See, what Jesus is doing in this very moment is changing the imagery. Christian thriving is not about having this cup that needs to be filled to this certain point until you feel like you're ready to serve the Lord. Christian thriving is more like you're a conduit or a pipe where you consume living water in Jesus Christ and the immediate output is serving Jesus. Living water pouring out of your spirit-filled heart that is a blessing and is life to those that are around you. This is the gospel-centered plumbing of the Christian heart. In every believer's life, there needs to be gospel intake. This consumption of Jesus as living water. This is everything we talked about in the first point, that if you want to thrive as a Christian, you need to consume living water. This is gospel inflow. This is the water of Jesus Christ coming into your life as you gaze at the glory of Jesus Christ. But the outflow is that your heart then becomes a spring of living water that pours out to the blessing and life of all those that are around you. This is what happens. When we're consumed with God's truth, it begins to rattle up inside of us, building pressure until there's nothing we can do but serve the Lord. This is why when Isaiah enters into the throne room and he sees the glory of God and he sees the seraphim flying around, calling out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, and he falls on his face in worship. What is Isaiah's first words? He says, here I am, Lord. Send me. And the truth has so gripped his heart that there is nothing he can do but to call out and ask for God to use him. 
This is the same experience of the woman at the well who discovers that Jesus is living water and this truth captivates her so that her only desire, even though she's told not to, is that she has to go to the city and tell everyone about this living water that they too can drink. And so you, if you are in Christ, have experienced this time where God's truth has so taken a hold of you that it doesn't matter what people might say about you at work. It doesn't matter what people might think about you. The only thing that matters when God's truth consumes your life is that you live for him. The problem is that so many of us are so thirsty for Jesus and not consuming living water. The gospel takes a hold of you. It drives through you and the outflow is a life that's lived in service of God. But there's so much we could say here, so much practical application. But I just want you to see this gospel thriving. It, It requires both inflow So that if you cut off the source of consuming Jesus Christ, if you're not drinking of the living water of Jesus Christ, there can be no water coming out. But it also requires outflow. So that if you cut off the other end, well, the water just sits in there and it grows stale. The gospel thriving Christian is consuming Christ and pouring out the blessing and life of living water through Christ. This means practically day in and day out, the most important thing that you can do is have a heart whose thirst is quenched by Jesus. This is your greatest necessity every day. I don't believe that it's like a law that you have to read the Bible in the morning and do a, have a time of devotion in the morning and have a time of personal worship in the morning. But I do believe this, that it's really hard to live for God throughout the day if you don't set your heart on the Lord. I love what John Piper says. He says that when he wakes up in the morning, he feels like Satan's sitting on his face. And I feel that same way, don't you, in the morning? I feel like if you don't get your heart right in the Lord— You start to even do the things that are supposed to have the best intentions with horrible intentions. The amount of time I've had to say grace, not having a heart for Jesus that I've just reprimanded my child. I've said, Mia, be quiet. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this food that you pray. It just doesn't doesn't work. And when our heart's not set on the Lord and we're not consuming living water, what happens is that instead of the water of life-giving satisfaction that comes from Jesus flowing out of us, now that black, dirty, muddy water pours through our heart, instead of being a blessing, can't we be a terror to those that are closest to us in the times we're not in the Lord? That's why Amber and I in our our house kind of have this principle that, that when we start to notice the other person, like starting to maybe lose it a bit, starting, they're starting to spiral with the kids or with each other, we just have this principle, you, you got to go and just be with the Lord. Especially if it's on a day where maybe for whatever reason, one or the other wasn't able to be in the Word and meet with Jesus in the morning. We just have this principle, you got to go and spend like t- five minutes, spend 10 minutes with the Lord. kind of works like, I don't know if you guys have any, anyone in your house that gets hangry. If you do, everyone just point at them right now. And no, no, I'm just kidding. Don't do that. But you know how hanger works, right? You're hungry, and so you have this anger that's coming from your hunger. And I propose that we made it, make a new word. Are you ready for it? Dads, you're really going to like this one. If you like dad humor, are you ready? It's, it's jersty. You're thirsty for Jesus. You get it? You get it there? I don't know if that one's going to roll as much as hangry is, but you get the principle. It's a bit of a silly principle, but there's honest truth here. That when you have a heart that's set on Jesus Christ, it becomes the natural outflow to worship Jesus Christ in all of your actions. This changes everything. For the housewife who 
feels like maybe it's hard to glorify God in the mundane activities of life. You set your heart on the Lord and you realize that every piece of folded laundry, every piece of food that's just thrown on the floor, everything that you do is for the glory of one who is so much greater than any other person. For the person who just feels lost at work without guidance, without direction, you realize that you serve a greater purpose. It's hard, to be, it's hard to be unforgiving when you have spent the morning meditating on the way that Jesus Christ has forgiven you, isn't it? It's hard to be angry when you spent the morning meditating on the fact that your sin deserves God's wrath, but instead of pouring it out on you, he poured it out on Jesus Christ. And what happens is as you set your heart on the Lord, you meditate on him, you're consuming this living water, and it's, the theology is right here. You're pouring out rivers of living water. See, if we're going to be thriving, we need this gospel inflow, but recognize that you also need gospel outflow. And so many of us, we think refreshing, refreshment, satisfaction, fulfillment will come when we just take a break. And so we stop. We stop serving. We stop loving. But what happens when we do that is this Water, it's closed off at the outflow and it just starts to stagnate because you can't live the Christian life apart from serving God's kingdom. This is why in Ephesians, Paul says that you are saved for good works because this is your identity now. You consume Jesus Christ and living water pours out of you. Now, I want to make a note here that there are times where it's right for us to back away from formal ministry. There are times where it's right for us to say no to commitments in our life. There are times that we truly experience burnout. And these are hopefully few and far between in our life, but there are also times that require really careful care. And I want you to know if you're in a place like that, that our church has the resources and the desire to care for you in that. And in that time, what you need is really God's people to provide special counsel for hopefully this special circumstance. But all this to say that the regular thriving Christian life is a life that is to be lived for the blessing and life of others. Church, this is the life that Christ invites us to. It's the life of thriving. Jesus invites us to connect our hearts to the hose that truly provides water. And Jesus stood up and cried out these words at a potential great cost to him. And what we discover in John is that he actually, because he was so loud, wouldn't be arrested. The chief priests would look at him and say, oh, I can't do it now. It'd make too much of a commotion. He's drawn too much attention to himself. And on this day, Jesus would stand up and cry out at the potential of great personal cost, but he'd be delivered from that cost. But there is a day coming where Jesus wouldn't just stand up and cry out to people. Jesus would hang on a cross. And on your behalf, he would cry out to the Father and say, Father, Father, why have you forsaken me? In the most public way, Jesus would suffer in order that you might, at the cross, believe in him and have this heart change so that you no longer desire the waters of this world that cannot satisfy, but that your heart's desire and its deepest moment would be Jesus Christ. See, the ultimate invitation to thrive, it happens at the cross where Jesus offers us full payment for our sin that we may bear the fullness of his life and righteousness. We celebrate communion this morning. We are remembering the most important invitation that's been given to us. And I'm going to invite the worship team up now as we respond to God's word. 
The most important invitation we've ever been given was the invitation to be cleansed at the cross of Jesus Christ. All those who bow before the cross are forgiven of the fullness of their sins, past, present, and future. It was the invitation to be to drink of his blood, which was the propitiation of our sin, and to eat of his flesh, which was he was pierced for our transgressions. And the cross is a wide open invitation, just like was given to those at the Feast of Booths, to drink of living water. And so we come to communion to remember all that Christ has done because we need this. Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me because we need this. We need the reminder that you have been forgiven of the sin that you have committed, of the sin you don't know that you've committed, of the sin you feel like it's, it's too great for you to be forgiven of. And if you guys need a communion cup, we're going to have some people walk down right now with these cups and you can stick your hand in the air and they're going to get one into your hands. During communion, we spend time to reflect and rejoice in all that Christ has done for us. And so uh, before we take communion, I actually want us to do that. And the way that we do that is by singing. And so we're going to stand. I invite you to stand now. And we're worship the Lord. Respond to his invitation that he's given us to drink of living water. take a seat. We enter into communion now, having responded to God's invitation. Hopefully in your heart, you've said these words. You've reminded yourself of the forgiveness that you have won in Jesus Christ. And we take communion to celebrate that forgiveness. Hopefully you have this cup. You'll notice that there's two layers. You peel off the top layer, and you'll get to the cracker. Peel off the bottom layer, you'll get to the juice. There's two reasons why you might not take of this communion cup this morning. And the first is if you, you just don't believe. Jesus has talked in this verse about believing. That drinking is deeply t- tied to our believing. And the only reason that you drink of this cup is because you believe in what it means and its significance and its symbolism. That you have been forgiven of your sins. Totally. That every sin Christ died on the cross for. Another reason why you might not drink of it is that maybe you're harboring sin in your life. There's a sin in your life that you're unrepented of, that the Holy Spirit is putting his finger on your heart, convicting you of the sin, but you're just unwilling to let it go. I'm not talking about the fact that you're a sinner. We all sin. And we're all in this process of growing. We all have sin that we wage war with. But my question is this, are you waging war with the sin that you're aware of in your life? And if there's sin in your life that you have just succumbed to, Paul says you actually by eating this bread and drinking this cup, drink judgment on yourself. And in this moment, you can repent. And this is the beauty of, this go- of the gospel. In this moment, you are forgiven so that you can participate in this family meal together. You take of the bread and the, the juice to participate on the way that Christ has saved us as a community and is growing us as a community and driving us through the gospel. So before we take this, let's pray. Set our hearts on the Lord. Father, God, we're praying this together. Lord, thank you for the cross. God, thank you for the invitation of Jesus, who in Isaiah 55 says, Come, he who has no money, come drink and come eat. We're invited to a banquet in Jesus. And God, we give you the deepest praise because, Lord, we're just, we're not worthy to be there. 
And yet, Lord, you invite each of us, despite our waywardness, despite our wickedness, despite how often we wander from your truth, Lord, you invite us back to you to find water that truly quenches our thirst. And God, you weren't just content to provide it. You sent your son to tell us about it. And so God, we take this cup, we eat of this bread because we believe his word that those who drink of him, the water that he provides, will never thirst again and that out of their hearts will flow living waters. God, we give you praise for this work that you have done and we rejoice in it as we take this cup together. God, we praise you. Pray this all in the name of your son. On that night, Jesus took the bread and he broke it. He said, this is my body. Do this in remembrance of me. Afterwards, he took the cup and he reminded them that this cup symbolized his blood that was shed for the forgiveness of their sins and the establishing of a new covenant with them. Let's celebrate that together. Let me pray again. Father, thank you. God, thank you for everything that this symbolizes, Lord. I pray that this week we would delight in the freedom that you have won for us on the cross, the freedom that we celebrate together as a family now. God, we give you all the praise. We give you all the glory. Thank you. It's in your name we pray. So thankful that you joined us this morning. If you're new with us, we're going to have some leaders that are standing up at the front. They'd love to meet you. If you have any questions about our church, we'd love to meet you and answer any questions you have. I also want to let you know that we have step one coming up on September 25th. We're going to be announcing more details about that in the coming weeks. But step one is an opportunity for you. If you're checking out our church and maybe you're trying to decide if this is the right place for you, we want to help you in that. And so step one isn't you committing to the church. It's really you committing to discover and learn about the church. And our leaders from the church will be there talking about our history, what we believe as a church, what we're passionate about as a church. And so we'd love for you to join us on September 25th. I also remind, want to remind you that our worship doesn't end here. When this service closes, we worship the Lord throughout the week. And one of the ways that we worship the Lord is through our uh, faithful giving. And you can find all the information you need online at redemptionnewmarket.ca. We encourage you to continue to worship the Lord in this church. Because Christ appeared on this world, he stood at the booth of feasts, and he cried out, let him who thirsts come to me and drink. Know that you are loved.